Black Cats Run podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll. This is Black Cats Run. Preparation is the biggest limiter to performance, probably in sports and in everything else, basically. And when we look at preparation in endurance sport, that's the biggest limiter to performance. What is, if anything, the limiter or biggest limiter to preparation? The answer, I think, is fatigue. In today's episode, we talk about some concepts of fatigue. I'm going to suggest some models of how we can use some concepts from game theory to understand fatigue and concepts like overtraining and how culturally we're pressured to recognize overtraining as actually the norm of preparation for performance rather than the exception. Let's get into today's episode. There's a difference between training model and training practice. And I think that this difference is probably something that should more or less go without saying, like there has to be disconnect between um, models and practice. I think that's just kind of going to be inevitable because the reality that we're navigating presents different circumstances and variables that are going to limit our ability to implement anything no matter how well designed it is. But we're also faced by the reality that our expectations of what is a good training model um, and how that training model should relate to practice towards uh, performance, right? Preparation practice is the act of preparation towards performance, say that five times fast. Um, that that modeling in and of itself is sometimes what's emphasized. But we're defining the value and the uh, benefits of models largely based on constructed notions of what training should and shouldn't look like. And there are empirical ways to look at, evaluate, and uh, be more um, sort of rationally deterministic about what training models should look like. But I think that it would be extremely difficult, and I'm going to hypothesize that it's impossible to get to the point where you can ever develop a model that is really ultimately highly executable. And I think this is one of those things that tends to sort of cause, um, you know, coaches to ultimately kind of like lose um, in in the sense that of like, you know, maintaining a long-term process with any given athlete. And there's other reasons for that too. Like, you know, athletes lose interest. Um, you know, athletes develop different perspectives on what they feel they should be doing, but setting those things aside, uh, you know, ceteris paribus here, I think that, you know, it's impossible to create a model 
that is going to exactly be what is appropriate uh, for practice. Um, and I think one of the big sort of overarching reasons for that um, has to do with fatigue. And because fatigue, I think, is really something that we can say basically means um, what prevents us from being able to do uh, what we plan to do, um, even when it, that's been, you know, reasonable. So it could be unreasonable, right? And an example of an unreasonable uh, planned expectation could be to run uh, mile repeats in four flat, okay? That's, or to run, or to do two times 20 minutes at 700 watts on the bike, um, right? There are certain things that are unreasonable, right? And so the why is that unreasonable? Well, because the fatigue that you're going to develop as you start to try to do that effort is so significant and overwhelming, you can't do it, right? Um, but we can also see fatigue develop from a different perspective, right? Where fatigue can be sort of a cumulative thing where you start out doing things that are manageable and reasonable, and then you subsequently experience a process of breakdown. And I think a lot of people have experienced this individually probably at different points where you feel like you're getting in quote-unquote worse shape over the course of a season, and it's not that you're really getting in worse shape because, and, and one way we can sort of prove this is that oftentimes if we actually take a substantive period of like non-effort, right? Not necessarily, it doesn't have to be literally non-activity, but it could be, um, but really just non-effort level of activity. And then, and that might be as, as short as three to five days, maybe, you know, less than a week, could be two weeks. And then um, athletes go out and they do suddenly do the performance that they couldn't do all season. And I think sometimes that's explained away as, well, they couldn't handle the pressure at the time and they weren't mentally tough. And well, I think it really has to do with a mismanagement of fatigue, right? And that, by the way, even if you wanted to try to lean into the argument that the fatigue is psychocognitive um, or, you know, I, I just don't think that that has substance to it because what's the reality here? The reality is, is that the the mind is a physical entity and you're inducing fatigue or fatigue that's induced from, you know, other places outside of training, which are perfectly legitimate and not always possible to uh, control, right? But a part of like the skill of being a good athlete or a coach is trying to develop strategies that anticipate possible inputs of fatigue from the training, but also from circumstances that exist outside of the training. And then thinking about how you can uh, mitigate those, or sometimes if you're really clever, finding ways to perhaps eliminate those completely. And um, when we look at this stuff, right, from that perspective, like there's always going to be a limit to that strategic capacity to get this stuff to be managed. So there's always going to be some level of fatigue. And, you know, this idea that performance is proportional to investment is something that I want to kind of explore. And I'm going to, you know, bring up repeat, uh, repeatedly through this episode and, you know, probably there will probably be a second episode, but we'll see where this goes. Um, but that that's, I think, going to be a, a common theme and a, and a common lever of understanding of like, and where do we see our expectation of proportionality, where the more I put in and the more immediately I put, put in, invest, the more, um, you know, I see that return. And actually, if you look at, ironically, 
uh, enough. If you look at patterns of investment, um, that initially uh, what you put in in an investment process is most responsive to the investment, but then over eventually, just sort of like the compounding interest, the sort of like cascading effect, if you will, of that becomes such that just the like accumulative um, rolling effect of that interest from that just sort of dwarfs that immediate investment. And I think that in athletics too, I think this idea that if we do something over a three to four week period that we're going to then at the end of the three to four weeks, you know, see a significant benefit, I think is not um, always really there. And I know that I've posted some stuff on our Instagram at Black Cats Run. You can go there and check that out if you want to see this. Um, I've shown some of my, for my part, some of my um, growth, I guess you would say, in lactate threshold and running since the beginning of July this year. And I think that that's substantive and, and significant. But I think the scale of improvement that you need to make in that kind of stuff to really start to see a significant, like a, a meaningful transformative difference in racing performance is actually much greater than that, which is kind of like, I think, reflective of like how challenging it is to get good at this stuff and why a lot of people who do have, frankly, probably elite, you know, we would say maybe world-class kind of potential never get there because they aren't training with that strategy in mind and they aren't thinking about and managing that fatigue. And so I think that these beliefs then um, and this about this disconnect between theory and practice um, is sometimes not seen in this way. And I would suggest that I think the normal view is to say that there's an inherent disconnect between theory and practice. Uh, and you know, Steve Magnus has a book, The Science of Running, and in the introduction, you know, I think one of the things he talks about is this idea that, you know, um, in the lab, um, that, you know, sports physiologists, exercise physiologists are trying to identify how to train and that coaches are doing stuff more based on like observed, you know, patterns of response to their interventions and that, you know, there's this like disconnect between these two groups and that coaches are oftentimes more so innovative in terms of like, that's really where you see new training practices being developed. Um, and that I think that kind of observational uh, thing, which I'm not saying there isn't some validity to that in terms of like what the body of, you know, aggregate evidence of what goes on in sport. Um, I think that does evidence that conclusion to be true. But I also think that that kind of stuff is a part of a broader belief that we have in society in general, that there's a disconnect between like theory and then what's real. And that theory is something that's not real and that people who develop theories lack a level of understanding. Uh, and, you know, as a teacher, I teach a course where we talk about um, a sort of historical, cultural and social impact of the development in the history of the science of biology, uh, the theory of evolution. And one of the things that comes up every single year, inevitably, with students is this, you know, comment slash question of, well, isn't it just a theory? Um, and I don't really know the exact point of origin of that, but that's really out there. This idea that if you put theory in front of something, that it means that it's like probably not really true, um, or it's like probably not really to be trusted. Um, when really I think that the 
putting the term theory in there is more of a like gesture at the fact that like all of our knowledge is limited. Um, you know, if you look at cosmology, like our concept of the universe has changed drastically, um, you know, over the last thousand years. And the reality is, as strange as this may be to think, you know, we are, you know, the prodigal cavemen, you know, of still of human society. And that, you know, the I mean, we still build houses out of wood and stuff like this. You know, and I'm not necessarily saying this is getting way off base in some ways, but I'm not saying there's some hyper, you know, technology necessarily thing in the future. But in terms of our levels of potential understanding that we can reach, like the the trajectory of the accumulation of knowledge, you know, suggests acceleration. And, you know, it also would imply that the things that we think to be true now are probably, you know, even if they might be true, they probably are so fractional of what the total understanding is, is to probably be incomplete. And the problem is it's really hard to prove to people that this is the case because the best way you can prove to them that it's the case is by learning something new. Um, and the whole point of this is that you're trying to frame that we don't have total understanding. And I think, and I've said this on other episodes, but it's relevant in particular to reemphasize here in this episode that our level of understanding of uh, endurance sport in sports fitness conditioning in general is probably super constrained and super narrow because that's a very, very recent uh, phenomena in society that we've gotten really interested in this um, and invested in this. And, and, you know, I would say that we're very much at the bottom of the well, you know, in terms of that, you know, and that the, you know, that the sunlight, you know, at the top of the well is probably a barely a, you know, pinprick, you know, so I think we're really far away from that. However, I don't think that that validates this concept that holds that training theory is just sort of irrelevant. You know, I don't think that the disconnect between uh, training models is because theory and practice are just inherently not the same thing. You know, I think in reality, um, it's certainly the case that the disconnect is a consequence of an inability to understand the concept of training. And I would argue that training is, is in essence conceptual. And I would say that the theoretical approach to training is something that's done by people in physiology and by coaches all the time. And I think one of the big reasons why it has to be conceptual is because uh, we don't have the ability to structurally anticipate and then account for all the possible burials of fatigue. Now, a really good coach is going to know the athlete, but you know, I have found that you can know the athlete and you can have an awareness, you know, of, of kind of what are the things that are empowering to them, what are the things that are going to draw them down, but you don't necessarily have the capacity to step in and do anything about that all the time. Um, because like it's not that you know you have to and you should uh, respect people's autonomy. And one of those aspects of autonomy is that you can't always get people to sort of give sports the priority of energy um, that is necessary, for, at least in your estimation, for them to get to what their goal is and or to get to uh, what you perceive to be their potential to be or what you feel the next logical step in performance might be. 
Um, that ultimately has to come from ourselves as athletes. And then if we're working with a coach, then that's something that you know we have to bring to the table with that relationship. You know, or if we are applying our own understandings and sort of self-coaching, as they say, um, if we're doing sport in that way, right, then we have to supply our level. We have to have that relationship with the part of us that is invested in, in sports where we can be honest with ourselves about what creates those distractions. Um, and it's not to say distractions is not being used as a pejorative. It's just by, you know, structural definition, something that maybe takes us out of um, the mode or the mindset of the desire to do, you know, the the training that is productive or the training at least that we've defined as productive, right? That must be a distraction, right? It is competed with something to sufficient degree to get us to move in a different direction, right? That's an effective distraction. And I think that when you're looking at this, right, you know, what you have to do is you have to design training conceptually, right? And that training models have to be conceptual and then trying to articulate to athletes that you coach that, you know, all of this stuff is just like exemplar, right? And like based on right now, this is what this could look like, but the probability that you're going to march through this in this manner is very low. And additionally, the probability that marching through it in this exact manner is going to be the most effective way to ultimately actually execute it is also false um, because of the variability of fatigue and, and circumstance. Uh, and there are people whom, you know, get crushed out, um, you know, their, their enthusiasm or their focus or their potential gets crushed out by all kinds of things. Um, and that's fine, right? If at, genuinely that is fine. As people, if people are, are healthy and they're fulfilled and they're satisfied with their choices, then there's nothing wrong with that, right? There is no inherent obligation to try to find your ceiling um, as an athletic performer, okay? Having said that, you know, it's also the case that self-actualization, self-esteem are defined needs and that athletics is a huge space in which we get that to happen. And it's also the case that, you know, athletics is like a very, um, you know, valuable, healthy thing for us to do. So there's also the weighing of like, you know, when we lose an opportunity to engage in that, that, you know, that does potentially have a negative or an adverse effect, right? But, you know, again, individual autonomy is important. So it's true then, right, that the concepts we're going to lay out initially are not going to work. But if it's a really a good concept, um, then functionally, we're going to be able to be adaptive, and what are we adapting to, right? We're talking about being adaptive in response to fatigue. Um, you know, usually I think people want to default to whatever they perceive to be the most efficient when they're trying to achieve a given aim. And our perception of efficaciousness is very important to this. Um, and that, again, this subscription of the subscription to this um, model that says that intellectual is inherently going to be more ineffective and imprecise. Um, you know, and it's also like in American culture in particular, I think we have like this embedded um, anti-technocracy, -tech you know, attitude, and it's tied up with these ideas of like 
frontiersmanship and and rugged individualism, which it's not really so much about like being like you're independent and self-sufficient as much as people think. I think it's more about the idea that like you're capable of understanding everything as well as it's possible and necessary to understand stuff. And that expertise is just an attempt an attempt to pull the wool over your eyes, exploit you and, and pick your pocket, um, which is wrong. Um, but that seems to be, you know, very much, very, very much there, right? So this natural know-how uh, is this thing that we we tend to to gravitate towards. And I think that's why people like um, seeing stuff on social media where they have people who seem like they're not trying to be expert. They just seem like they're fellow, you know, sojourners <laughs> in the pursuit of athletic achievement, I guess. And then they say they drink baking soda. Um, and then we say, oh, well, we should drink baking soda, right? But the reality is, is these ideas are trickling out of stuff that people read on the internet because they're reading stuff that actually is coming from intellectual and academic spaces. And then they don't have the the skills or the practice yet to actually interpret that stuff effectively, right? So this natural know-how thing is, you know, I think hyper-limited. Um, and I think the difference is, is that we already recognize the limitations of, you know, um, you know, intellectual perspective, right? That there's going to, we know there's ineffectiveness there, but there's also ineffectiveness to this sort of like, well, this is what you know, honky tonk Hank thinks is the case. And, you know, he's been running for 20 years or 50 years. And so he knows what's up with the what's up. And, uh, you can be coaching, you know, for decades and basically know absolutely nothing. Um, and you can coach for, uh, a year and you can be more competent, right? But where do we assign and identify competence, right? When we don't necessarily know what it looks like ourselves, it's, it's really challenging. Um, and I think that, you know, the challenge of implementing any approach to training is something that requires a lot more thinking and consideration and strategy than people are popularly willing to accept. Because I think there's this sense that if you accept that that strategy is needed, then you're accepting this measure of inaccessibility. Um, and obviously, there's not inaccessibility because people do this. But I think the reality is we have to develop our level of understanding. And I, you know, I think that, um, you know, by recording, you know, these podcast episodes and doing this podcast, I suppose I am actively trying to do, um, you know, battle with the notion that this stuff is just very simple and, you know, people make it needlessly complicated. And, um, you know, the nice thing is that we can decide what we want to listen to and consume and, um, you know, obviously we know that if you say a bunch of stupid bullshit, um, people love that. And then if you try to go into stuff with greater levels of accuracy or consideration, um, you end up turning a lot of people off. Why? Because, well, that person is using words that I um, don't understand because they're more than one syllable, so they probably are not trustworthy, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I'm not interested in in trying to, you know, persuade people to see this stuff differently, but I am interested in commenting on the structure and the dynamics of this stuff as I see it play out, because I think it's really fascinating. And I think cumulatively, um, what this leads to is that fatigue is not really being identified and 
understood. And I think that's because structurally, um, we're oftentimes forced into competition when talking about training and how we think we should be training. And, you know, like this podcast is not like highly influential, right? Is anybody, you know, who listens to it is aware that, you know, this isn't a pot, you're not going to encounter somebody um, on the street um, who listens to this podcast in all probability. Um, and I am fine with that personally. I'm, and I'm not looking to cultivate an audience or I guess the, the real, a community. I'm not really, that's not what my interest is. My interest is in, you know, talking through my ideas and, and perspective. And, you know, I find it very beneficial and helpful for me because it gives me a chance to metacognate, uh, be sorry, metacognate, to be metacognitive in a way that I wouldn't necessarily probably be able to do otherwise. So that's the value um, I get from this. And let's say, though, that uh, I wanted the podcast to sort of try to gain popular traction or relevance. Well, I think what you then start to move into is this idea that you are going to be forced into competition to do that, right? You don't like put information out there um, that's useful and effective, and then it's proportionally engaged with. Um, you're competing. And uh, I think that what we usually see is that this kind of competition is defined by maybe one or more different Nash equilibriums, um, which is you know the phenomenon where competitors try to be as close as possible to each other in strategy in order to gain um, advantage. And this is why people are able to gain traction in social media spaces by simply repeating the same things, um, cutting edits in the exact same style, using the exact same uh, approach of like kind of like repeated plot climaxing tensions like every 60 to 90 seconds and their 10 to 20 minute uh, YouTube videos and vlogs and, you know, everything is constantly, you know, building towards these little micro climaxes of now we're going to say this profound thing, we have this profound thing, right? And all that's a, a product of editing, but that's all being done to keep close to the competition, right? So the competition in those spaces isn't competition in terms of, well, who has the best strategy um, for training? The competition is who has the best strategy for getting people to listen to them, getting people to watch what they're doing. And so then what is driving and determining um, the way we talk about training, the way we talk about the difference between training plans and then how people actually implement training, um, what is being talked about, or I would argue not talked about in terms of fatigue, has to do with audience, right? And it has to do with um, consumption. And people don't want to consume, for example, me being like, oh, you know what? I think it's important to really take it easy a lot. And as an example of that today, I'm going to go run for 70 minutes. And hey, look at that. I did 11 minute pace. That's great. Very easy, very relaxed, zero additional muscular fatigue. Nobody's going to look at that because that's not, that's not what we want to see. Um, you know, we know we want to see heroics, right? And so this is shaping our concept of fatigue as a consequence is it's this notion of, okay, like, hey, let me represent to you that I have incredible fatigue and I'm doing this stuff anyway, right? 
I'm not, I'm not going to let this hold me back. Well, that's exciting right now because we're seeing somebody do something that's unique, that defies our reasonable expectations based on personal experience. Because guess what? When we're really tired, whether it's muscular fatigue, whether it's like we're sleepy, um, whether it's our brain, um, you know, it's just sort of temporarily feels short-circuited from maybe working on a project, you know, or doing something that required um, a lot of, you know, metaphorically speaking, mental bandwidth during the day, then it's hard to do that. So we start to create this notion that fatigue is something that we overcome, not something that we engage with or we listen to, or that that's like actually a really important metric. And you know what, if you do, you can get a whoop and then you don't have to think about it and you can just do whatever the whoop says. Um, I actually don't agree with that. I think the whoop is basically a piece of shit. Um, so, you know, I think, right, when we start to recognize the dynamics of this uh, competition, we start to recognize that it's going to shape how we see training. And then a huge part of that is how we see fatigue. And, you know, I think I've staked out on this podcast um, effectively by natural consequence of the fact that when you make any series of interpretations uh, or conclusions that are related to any sort of generally focused topic, um, I've staked out a position that is very far away from the competition. You know, these aren't the kinds of things that um, you're seeing people present, right? And this is also long form, you know, deep dive um, approach to this stuff too, right? And so there's this other concept in culture right now that, oh, people won't consume anything longer than blank. Well, I don't think that's true. I think if people aren't really interested in something, they might give it 30 seconds of their attention. I think that's always been the case. Um, it's just that like we now don't have an expectation uh, that people should force themselves to sit and sit still and let that let themselves be exposed to that. The reality is they're still not really consuming or getting anything out of that. We just had the illusion that they were because they were present, but they were not mentally present or engaged, you know. So there's a variety of things that essentially defeat, you know, that um, that possibility. And so then that means as a consequence, if you're following what I'm saying here, um, that like it's not it's extremely difficult to try to shift perceptions around this stuff. And then because we're constantly getting inundated with these uh, Nash equilibriums that are driving narrative and interpretation and representation of how to train, you know, these things that we talk about on this podcast appear wrong to people because they're outside of the consensus, but the consensus is a result of this game theory behavior. It's not a result of what's actually effective. Um, now, as I said, you know, like I'm not particularly concerned by the fact that um, you know, I'm not going to compete effectively against those uh, entities, um, except to the extent that it matters to me that by virtue of being uh, so far removed from the competition, that um, you know, the consider that these like theories and concepts of training practice that I'm, you know, argue in favor um, of across the, all the episodes that we have on the podcast so far and going forward, they're essentially being marginalized, right? And it's really interesting to observe how ideas are sorted out in society, right? That they're sorted out by these sort of competitive processes, right? It's a market 
uh, determination. It's not a like um, strategic validation or strategic practice, right? Or because I'm not an Olympic trials qualifier or I'm not a former uh, world tour cyclist or I don't meet that minimum uh, threshold of personal achievement, right? That's another um, you know factor that people use to leverage that uh, sort of, what are they, I guess people like to say engagement with their community. We've got these, you know, nice special uh, terminology to refer to that kind of stuff now. So if we're going to like then try to encapsulate this and sort of coin a phrase here, I think this defining Nash equilibrium in this instance is what I'm going to call a the proportional adversity postulate. And by this, I mean that competitors uh, for engagement hover around creating a narrative which focuses on the idea that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And this weird application of Newtonian physics also seems to be used to justify the concept of training as like a perpetual motion machine. Um, you know, and has, and has, as had been discussed and picked apart at length on this podcast and a number of other episodes, um, this is then the notion of this mind body duality and that we simply achieve more uh you know the greater to which we overcome the body's reluctance um you know the brain's uh weakness um we overcome it with this other part of ourselves and the more we overcome the more we you know celebrate and bring forward our inner athlete and repress the baser weaker part of our nature because obviously the body which has been evolving over billions of years definitely is not going to send out any kinds of signals in response to a, just experience stress, whether it's environmental stress or whether it's self-induced stress that would be worth listening to. Of course, we should not pay any attention to that. We should repress the living crap out of that information. I'm being sarcastic for those of you who can't tell. Um, so like people talk about the algorithm, right? And, you know, like as a thing they make the blood sacrifice to. Um, and I'm not saying that like media isn't driven by, you know, you know, mathematical models determining, you know, what content goes to what accounts, you know, et cetera. But like, it's really ultimately more so reflective of the behavior of the Nash equilibrium. And in this case, like, you have to uh, engage in the proportional adversity postulate model, which is showing people that you grind and then you gain, right? Uh, and it's, you know, no, uh, no pain, no gain as a concept predated the, the algorithm. It's just the algorithm just sort of, you know, is kind of engaging with the reality of the Nash equilibrium. And, I understand uh, the desire to compete for attention for the consumer is basic economic sense. And it's also the only way um, by uh, way by which most of us can measure our sense of self-actualization, right? If people are, you know, engaging with what you're producing, if you feel that you have a community around the stuff that you're um, putting out there, that that can be validating. And I, I think that's fine. I, I don't mean to, minimize that. And I think engaging, you know, an audience and entertaining, I think that's great um, in and of itself. And for my part, like, you know, I certainly also 
uh, think self-actualization is important. You know, and for, for me, I think though that's more about, you know, I like to try to solve these puzzles, um, you know, on paper and then see if I can solve them in practice. You know, I like to say, well, how can I connect that, uh, the theory to practice, right? How can I navigate that development and implementation of the training concept? And, you know, how can I seek out opportunities to sort of like allow mistakes to happen and then, you know, use that new information to continue to, you know, develop my understanding, right? Um, and I, you know, I think to be fair, sometimes I've solved some of these things in practice in the past, but, you know, it's fun to solve these puzzles again and again. And, you know, there's always new variables, right? You always need to have an adaptive approach to strategy because different things are going to play out. Um, and so my competition you know, my competitive muse, if you will, is unlocking, you know, on an individual level, athletically, um, you know, what can we recognize as the connection between these concepts of training and the actual practice of training. And that's what I, you know, find rewarding. And um, it's been very interesting because I feel I'm continuing to discover layers and layers of my own um, mind and my own relationship to training and practice. And, you know, each of these layers oftentimes are representing something that I need to essentially unteach myself. And, you know, that's been a really interesting process and challenge. And that's what's brought me back to this uh, thought of this thing about fatigue that I've been thinking about a lot uh, since I, you know, posted the, the previous episode in the podcast. And, I've begun to suspect this uh, is very true um, in the concept of my own threshold training and practice because I think the the layer that I'm you know struggling to unteach myself is that it's very difficult to resist um, the good feeling that comes with training too hard in some cases way too hard. And that I previously defined training too hard as just basically training at what now I'm thinking of is really was like the point of physical failure. And I didn't learn initially to perceive that as the point of physical failure because it wasn't like respected velocity in the training environments that I was a part of. Right. So it doesn't matter how hard you're training. If you're not running your mile repeats in 445, then the norm within the culture is, well, you're not training hard, right? And it's actually that you don't know how to train hard. And so unlearning these things, and again, right, like I've said, one of the cool things about doing this podcast is I've been metacognitive in ways that I think it would have been challenging for me to get to otherwise. Um, you know, but I'm recognizing that these things, like, are rooted in my mind, and they are constantly, like, pressuring me to react to and respond and assess and make decisions about what is and isn't productive um, in different ways. And, you know, I think my minimum standard of work, this is my uh, thesis here, uh, I think my minimum standard of work is basically overtraining. And I believe that this is due to uh, the social conditioning and the chronic immersion um, exposure to social constructs of what good slash not good training practices are. And the 
stuff that we see in terms of like what makes it to the forefront, right? This proportional adversity uh, postulate is, I think, actually taking off, you know, in this current wave of, you know, how we generate media, right? What we talk about when we talk about endurance sports is really, I think, driving that perception for other people too. And I think as a consequence, you know, when we recognize this, uh, I think we also need to recognize that it's probably important to try to talk about this and see if we can figure this stuff out and then see how we can apply this. Because I also think that one of the things that's happened is I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people um, that have been genuinely extremely interesting and rewarding and enjoyable for me. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do when I first came up with the idea to do this podcast is my original idea was that I just wanted to like have conversations with different people about their experience with training and how they talked about training and just try to like compile a lot of that stuff as kind of like an ethnographic perspective. Um, But unfortunately, uh, at least, well, I mean, unfortunately for, you know, my goal there anyway, uh, unfortunately I discovered that basically nobody wanted to do that. (laughs) So as a consequence, um, it didn't happen. The other thing that has been interesting is I've had a number of different conversations uh, with people, um, not just in terms of like potentially doing a podcast episode um, and sharing their experience and that not panning out, um, but also like people who've, you know, reached out and expressed interest of like, oh, this is, you know, how can I apply this to my training? How can I do this, that, or the other thing? And, you know, what I've found is like in some instances I've talked to people and, you know, gone back and forth and exchanged some ideas, Um, you know, in other instances, like, you know, people are asking so many questions. I've just said, look, if you want like coaching or planning, I'm happy to give that to you. And some people have been like, oh yeah, that's great. That's exactly what I want. And then they don't, you don't hear anything from them. (laughs) And it's like, okay, whatever, right? You're respecting people's autonomy. Um, You know, I'm not doing this to like, you know, make a fortune or anything like that. Um, So people like, you know, change their mind, that's fine, right? No hard feelings, Um, you know, or you, you know, you'll have people who you sort of start working with and then they just sort of like evaporate. And that's sort of been an interesting experience. I think it's reflective of the fact that we can on this podcast say, well, like we train too hard and, you know, or this concept is broken or this concept is broken and here's how we need to do it. But when we try to put the stuff into practice, it's not working. Okay. And the fact that it's not working, I would like to suggest here is not because we're not saying the right things, but it's because there's an additional layer to that. And that's where the coaching stuff uh, is important. And, you know, yes, I suppose I would toot my own horn here to some extent, but really just in general, this is like the where the coach is such an important part of sport um, is that a, good, a coach, provided they are a good coach, um, and by implication, what follows is probably also the definition of a good coach, provided they're a good coach, they're going to be able to identify, recognize those issues and basically say that, okay, like you understand that your need to 
maybe reduce it or pull it back. But actually, you're not all the way to that concept and understanding because I have mastery over what this needs to be. And, you know, here's what this needs to look like. Let's keep conferencing on it and let's keep building that understanding through experience. And then there's a trial and error process. And if you keep working on that, eventually you're going to get to that point. And I think what people are struggling with is they're struggling with fatigue, both because they're not managing the fatigue correctly in terms of reducing it, or, and I think this is some ways more interesting, is that people start doing this stuff and then they like don't like that they're not experiencing enough fatigue or it's not hard enough. And they are then like, there's all of this other, you know, information um, or narrative, you know, about like, well, what is it about? Like, and the idea that you're missing out on something essential, important, meaningful, valuable by not getting absolutely freaking trashed um, in training sessions. And like, you know, Trainer Road, for example, gives us that, right? Trainer Road gives us that. There used to be this, I don't know if it's still a thing, but there used to be this thing called the Sufferfest, um, where you could like buy these uh, like cycling race montages and they would like prompt you through some like ridiculous workout, right? And you could do it, but it was basically like this all out race effort. It wasn't like repeatable, right? But it was just like suffer, suffer, suffer. And so then like you take that away from people and getting people to like accept that that's what they need to do. And like people like the idea of, oh, okay, so I can feel better. Um, but I think that in practice, we're struggling with that. Um, so I, I hope that this episode and then, uh, subsequent episodes are going to help to like explore that a little bit more. Um, and if you are sort of struggling to navigate this and you want to, you know, reach out, you can message us on, um, the Instagram page at Black Cats Run. I'm always happy to chat chat with people and it's helpful to me too to hear what people are wondering about because that oftentimes give me, gives me ideas of of what would be you know interesting to explore or talk about in the podcast so that's the other uh, other thing that I really value with talking to people is it's prompted me to look at stuff with different perspectives and get interested in other questions um, which has also been really informative for me so what do we want where do we want to go from here um so I think that we can probably recognize and maybe agree, and of course you as a listener are uh, silent, <laughs> so I'm going to take your silence as consensus, um, and I think we can reach a consensus that um, like there is still widespread congregation around the basic strategy of training being like, it's so freaking hard. Uh, you can watch Lionel Sanders' YouTube video um, from this past week of his mile repeats and what he talks about in there, right? And I think that's a great example of, you know, I think, I don't mean this as a criticism. I just mean this as an observation. And I think that a lot of people struggle with this, right? Including myself. But I think, you know, what you see in in that is this like regression back to this concept of like, it doesn't feel hard enough. Like if I don't feel like I'm at this thing that my brain is telling me is this sort of like outer boundary, uh, I'm not going to get better. So what we're going to talk about next is we're going to talk about overtraining. We're going to talk about productivity. We're going to talk about load 
management. We're going to talk about rest, uh, what rest actually means. Talk about blood bonking. Going to talk about identifying a regression and then reaching some conclusions. And I think we'll spread this out over a couple of other episodes um, instead of throwing this down on like a two and a half to three hour episode. So what I would leave you with here as like an incentive to listen to the subsequent forthcoming episodes is that fatigue is something that we both um, struggle to understand in terms of we need to first like reduce it sufficiently to train effectively, but also we struggle with it because fatigue is essentially the adversity that we overcome. And when you take away that kind of adversity, you take away a huge part of how people feel like they're overcoming on a regular basis. And for most of us, we're never going to get to the level where we're going to be qualifying for major, like I'm not talking about the Boston Marathon, right? I'm talking about like legitimate, like big deal, like high level competitions. Um, Some of us do. Um, but I would suspect that probably most of the people who are listening to this podcast are not, um, you know, sponsored international athletes, (laughs) you know, because if you're, if you're at that level, um, you, those people are, would probably not be inclined, um, to be trusting, (laughs) you know, of this voice, um, or of this perspective, because it's not saying, Uh, what their entire environment and world around them is built on, which is that they are special. They're more special than us because of their capacity to resist fatigue and suffering in training. So when we play this out, right, how do we train effectively? Uh, Jillian uh, Bennett you know, cyclist, one of the things I used to talk to her about in training was that I think it would be helpful, you know, if we periodically did something that's like really challenging um, and rewarding, because I think that has a positive impact on your level of engagement. And those things need to be frequent enough to keep us liking what we're doing, feeling good about ourselves because of what we're doing. Um, But they also need to be infrequent enough that they're not like just dominating what we're doing with massive amounts of training. And one of the things that uh, I would do with her is we would go out uh, in the winter and we did this for a couple years where we'd go out in the winter and we periodically go out and run these 50 kilometer runs. Um, And they were usually like extremely hilly runs on, you know, dirt roads and, you know, ice and snow. And there's a lot of like dehydration and stuff like that. And is that stuff incredible, awesome, precise training? Probably not. But is it, and is it like levering, you know, a ridiculous amount of fatigue that has a negative effect on training for a while? Definitely. 
but it's like this conundrum or this paradox that like unless we like expose ourselves to and grapple with that fatigue sometimes it just kind of all becomes sort of like meaningless right and it's not that we want to like suffer and be uncomfortable it's that we want to feel competent and we can't feel competent unless like we're overcoming a level of of challenge right there's that kind of like sweet spot there but that amount of fatigue that we do battle with to feel good to get that mo- the greatest level of edification is not the basis on which we want to like be designing training efforts and i think there's too much of that that goes on and i think so much of what we see um currently in social media representations of this stuff suggests that that's kind of what people do all of the time and it leaves us really lost and confused and so then even if we try to pull back like we still don't really know how to pull back and i think as a consequence and this is what i'm going to talk about in the next episode to start i think probably 90 to 95 percent of people who do endurance sports um from the amateur, amateur, amateur of amateurs, lead amateurs, sub-elites, um, you know, and world-class professionals, I think 90, 95% of people are overtrained. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Uh, if you've enjoyed this or other episodes, you can check us out on our Instagram page at Black Cats Run. Send us a DM if you have anything that you're wondering about or you have a perspective that you would like to share. Always happy to hear those and happy to then turn those and represent um, those on future podcast episodes. If you can think of anybody else in your life who would find any of this stuff meaningful and rewarding to listen to while they're folding the laundry, you know, mowing the lawn, running on the treadmill, riding their bicycle on a trainer on Zwift, uh, send them a link to our podcast. We'll catch you next time.